and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. And this week's guest is one of my podcast heroes. I listen to every episode of her show. I love what she does and how she's carved out a space for herself in the podcasting game. And, you know, if you've read the title of this episode, you know that her name is Karina Longworth. She's the host of, you must remember this, a wonderful podcast about sort of these hidden stories behind the history of Hollywood. She delves into all of the, like, tales that weren't told at the time that were sort of being covered up in the gossip magazines, if you will. And she has done, in essence, what is an incredibly in-depth dive into the world of old Hollywood in her new book, Seduction, which I'm just sort of blown away by. I think it's one of the best nonfiction titles of the year. The book is about Howard Hughes, sort of. Hughes, of course, was this famous, extremely rich man. He was an aviator, he was a business tycoon, and he was a movie producer of sorts. He's perhaps more famous now for the way he died, which was in extreme isolation and become like a recluse and clearly had some undiagnosed mental health issues going on. But during his heyday, Howard Hughes was one of the most powerful figures in Hollywood. And what's interesting about Karina's book is the way that she uses Hughes as a prism, not just for Hollywood, but for all of these women who came in contact with him. Some of them came away, you know, better off for having met him. Like Catherine Hepburn was someone that he was he was very close to for a while, and she obviously had a wonderful career. But a lot of them had their lives essentially ruined by Howard Hughes. And what I love about Karina's book is the way that she focuses on these women, not as pursuits of Hughes, as, as women that he vetted in his sort of playboy image, but as people who had their lives really destroyed by what Hughes did. And I think that that is a really fascinating way to reframe this idea of the billionaire playboy, which is so prevalent in our culture. And anyway, I recommend the book. Even if you like turn off the episode right now, you should go get the book. But I think that Karina had some really fascinating things to say about Hollywood, about these women, about Howard Hughes, and about like the ways that these systems that he helped perpetuate continue to this day. It's a really fascinating discussion. I could have talked to her for three hours more. So anyway, stick around. I think you're going to like it. Karina Longworth, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So obviously, like, the book is about Howard Hughes, but it's about him through sort of a different prism. But for all of our listeners who maybe don't know who Howard Hughes is, which is <laughs> probably a fair amount of people, sadly, uh, kind of tell us who the guy was and, like, what this book, um, what prism it looks at him through. So Howard Hughes was born in 1905, and he was the son of a guy who invented a new drill bit, which basically made drilling for oil much easier. And he became very rich off of this. And then his dad, both of his parents died when he was a teenager. So Howard Hughes inherited his father's company and his estate. Um, so he basically, can I swear on this podcast? You can swear all you Okay, want. so he had, he was like a 20-year-old kid with fuck you money. Mm -hmm. And he could do anything he wanted. And what he decided to do was move to Houston, move from Houston to Hollywood and he wanted to become the greatest motion picture producer of all time, as well as the greatest aviator and the greatest golf player. And he stopped playing golf, but he got pretty close on the aviation front, at least like for his era. And then he continued to dabble in making movies from about 1925 until about the end of the 1950s. 
And over that course of time, he had a lot of relationships with a lot of actresses. And he also got into a lot of plane crashes and had a lot of head injuries. And um, especially from the 1940s on, became increasingly eccentric. And now it's easy to see was suffering from probably mental problems that stemmed from these head injuries. Mm. I wasn't alive for the end of his life, but I was alive for the battle over he didn't leave a will. So there was a lot of legal wrangling over who got his money. So that's like kind of how I first came to know him was as this weird recluse who died um, all by himself. But, you know, sort of other portrayals of him have really played up the glamour. You think about um, the Scorsese movie, The Aviator, which I think is a good movie, but Mm -hmm. like definitely plays up the glamour angle. What What I like about this book is it plays up I mean, obviously, it's it's steeped in that old Hollywood world, but it's also talking about mm, the way that he sort of robbed the women in his life of their agency, and it's mm-hmm. this recurring pattern. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, how you came to think about Hughes through the perspective of these women who knew him. Well, what I was really interested in was the actresses more than I was interested in Hughes. And so Hughes became an easy way to kind of tie together a lot of different actresses' experiences of trying to work in Hollywood during this period that historians call the classical Hollywood era. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I thought of him as as the spine of the story, as kind of the Trojan horse through which I could smuggle in these stories of female experience. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is probably my favorite thing about the book is the way that it's, that it's sort of, you know, uses the idea of Hughes, like essentially imprisoning some of these women as a, almost a metaphor, like maybe that's too grand a word, but <laughs> almost a metaphor for the way that Hollywood gradually sort of stripped women of their agency. And I think you dig really deeply into like how Hollywood was a place where independent women could go. And like, tell me about how that shift sort of came to be over the course of what's in this book, which is roughly the silent era through uh, the 50s. There's some mm-hmm. later stuff, but... Um. I'm sorry, what shift? <laughs> the shift from the idea of Hollywood. You start, In the book, it starts as Hollywood is a place where like an independent woman who wants to, you know, make her own career can go. And by, you know, the 1950s, those uh, you're looking at someone like um, Ida Lupino, who's like the only female director working. Like how did sort of how did that shift um, occur? Well, I don't know that it's as simple as a shift. You know, there is a period during the silent era, particularly where there were more female film directors and um, women were working in all aspects of filmmaking. And but I don't think it necessarily stopped being a situation where independent women could arrive in Hollywood and try to have careers. Mm -hmm. It's just that there, especially women who wanted to be actresses, there was a trade off. And you got a lot of benefits for stardom, um, but in a lot of cases, you had to give up something essential about who you were, if not many and or all of the essential things about who you were to become sort of another person and, and to take on a persona. Mm-hmm. And so that in itself is a kind of dehumanizing process. Mm-hmm. And then when you pair that with a lot of the, you know, sort of sexual situations that a lot of actresses found themselves in, because of men like Howard Hughes who were able to use their power freely, that is a further dehumanization process. So not, you know, certainly not every independent woman who came to Hollywood faced both of those processes, but a lot of them faced a, a little bit of age. Mm-hmm. And we're probably going to return to that theme throughout the uh, discussion, but I do sort of want to ask, how did you write this? It's like <laughs> huge and like yeah, there's so much research that went into it. And I read your, in the back, you say notes about sources and like you spent 
10 or 11 days in like this library collection in, in Texas. How did you sort of commence the research process of this and like nail down what it was going to look like? Well, for my podcast, I always just try to read everything that I can that's been printed about somebody that I'm writing about. But I had a, a two-year deadline on this, so I knew I had more time to go deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just immediately, you know, I'm kind of a bibliography nut. And mm-hmm. so when I do read a book, I'm always going back and forth to the sources and just basically trying to deconstruct how the book was made. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to do that, you know, for Howard Hughes and for some of my other subjects, I was able to basically figure out that there were papers at various places and so I just, you know, I wanted to go to those original sources as much as possible. Um, so I, I mean, definitely the first year of working on the book, I was mostly just reading. And, you know, I was I was actually living in London at the time because of my boyfriend's work. And so I would make these trips usually to America, to like various cities, and I would only have like five to seven days. And so I would just furiously photocopy like files or be printing things out from microfiche or doing whatever I could to accumulate papers that I could then take back to London Mm -hmm. where I would read everything. Mm -hmm. And as I was collecting these different things, I was keeping this long document where I was organizing all my research chronologically. So any like note, any quote from a person, any anecdote, I would just put where it belonged on the chronological document. So I knew everything that happened in 1925 to all of these people or 1942, the 40s where where a lot of this stuff happened. And so once I had done that, then I was able to kind of figure out, well, this is how you divide up all of these time periods into chapters. And these are the important stories to tell about people and and it was just kind of a weeding out process. Are you somebody who uh, you, you say you like to read everything written about a person? But in, at the in his obituary, people said Howard Hughes was the most publicized. So, like, mm-hmm. there must have been mountains of stuff to read about him. Yeah, uh, I mean, I went to Las Vegas twice, and I had to go twice because what they have at the University of Las Vegas, Nevada, are the files kept by the publicists that he employed for um, basically until from about 1947 until the end of his life. And a lot of the work these publicists did was collecting clippings files about everything that had to do with Howard Hughes, about anybody he was interested in that he told them to collect clippings on, and then other topics that he was also interested in, like the mafia. Mm. And so there's just hundreds and hundreds of boxes of mostly newspaper clippings in these files. And when you go to an archive like that, you know that you're not going to be able to read everything, but you can like figure out how to carve a path through it so that you get like a real bird's eye view of how somebody was written about over the course of their lifetime. Mm-hmm. There was an interesting uh, thread on Twitter by the journalist Anne Helen Peterson who was talking about how all journalists and I think all nonfiction writers like have one of either research – research slash reporting, um, writing and editing that they like least. And for me, it's always been the research and reporting. (laughs) Are you somebody who like really loves that sort of deep dive? Yeah. Well, I'm not really reporting. I'm not great at talking to people, but Mm -hmm. in terms of reading everything, yeah, I really like that. Um, yeah, between those three things, I guess I would I would divide research and reporting up. So it would be four things, and reporting would be the thing that I like the least. Yeah. But um, I'm okay with the other three. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the process of like of writing it because it's 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 a long it's a long book. It's 450 pages, but I'm sure you had to leave a lot out. Like, sort of, how did you find the spine of what this story was going to be? I did leave things out. I mean, I don't consider it a biography of Howard Hughes at all, mm-hmm. and I. It is not a full biography of any of the 10 women who are the main characters, but I was actually surprised when I turned in the first draft about a year ago. 
I thought that my editor would be, you know, slashing his way through it, telling me it was way too long. It's definitely longer than what I was contracted to write. But instead, he wanted me to add things. Mm. Um, There were areas that he wanted me to flesh out. Mm. Mm. So um, it's not the book you pick up if you want a comprehensive biography of Howard Hughes or Jean Harlow or Jane Russell. Um, It's more of a group portrait of these people. But it's not like there's stuff on the cutting room floor that I think is really important. You also watch a lot of the movies that these women starred in and the movies Hughes produced. The actresses covered in the book range from like really famous people like Catherine Hepburn, like people we've we've all heard of, to you know more obscure figures like um, Terry Moore, who uh, claims she was married to Hughes on a yacht um, or something like that. No, who, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who uh, who were some of the people that you sort of came away with a new understanding of, whether obscure or you know really mm-hmm. famous? You know, I don't think I had seen any Terry Moore movie other than Pain in Place before I mm-hmm. um, wrote the book. And so she was nominated for an Oscar for a movie called Come Back Little Sheba. And, you know, Terry Moore is somebody who makes herself very open to criticism because of her claims about her relationship with Hughes. But what was really surprising to me was that she really was amassing a career as a serious actress in mm-hmm. the 1950s, working with people like Elia Kazan. And... Um, You know, I mean, I think her personal life did kind of get in the way, but like she absolutely deserved to be nominated for an Oscar for Comeback Little Sheba. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and we talk about Catherine Hepburn as being one of the greatest actresses of all time. And, you know, certainly she is great and she's a great movie star. But it is really interesting to think that Terry Moore, like, really had this serious career that she deserved that was like kind of just out of her grasp. How much of that? That stardom is, you know, innate. Like how much of Catherine Hepburn being one of the biggest stars of all time is innate to her talent, which is considerable, and how much of it is, you know, just that she didn't end up having, you know, with with the horrible luck of uh, she escaped the Hughes orbit, let's say. Well, I don't think that Hughes held her back at all. Mm-hmm. As I um, as I detail in the book, like the kind of the process of her becoming a great star is what I talk about in the book. And I think a lot of it does have to do with Howard Hughes. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly, like, she was at a kind of a crisis point in her stardom. And having this relationship with Hughes that was very public helped people think about her in a different way, helped kind of soften her persona and made it more feminine and more sort of heteronormative. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he helped her get the rights to this Philadelphia story, which is the movie that really kind of cemented her her stardom, like she could have kind of drifted away at the end of the 1930s. And the Philadelphia story is the thing that really brought her back. And then forming her partnership with Spencer Tracy, you know, took her to another level as well. Because it's not a biography of Hughes, you don't need to, you know, sort of speculate as to some of his motivations because a lot of them are shrouded. But I I did find myself wondering, you know, it's this repeated pattern of he encounters a woman he's attracted to and he puts her under contract and then in essence locks her away, especially after his crash in 1948. Is that? 46. 46. Okay. So as you encountered that pattern, did you get a sense of why that was happening? What was driving him to do that? Well, I think he had, um, especially after that crash, you know, I think he really had the personality of a collector. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have ownership over things, whether he played with them or not. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a the most succinct way I can um, <laughs> analyze it. You know, I mean, I'm not I'm not a psychoanalyst and it wasn't, you know, the primary thing I was trying to do in this book, but I did one of the 
those sources I have is that I was able to look at the files of a guy named Raymond Fowler, who was a psychologist and who was hired by Hughes's lawyers after his death to do what was called a posthumous psychological autopsy. Mm. And so he basically wrote kind of a biography of Hughes's mental health over the course of his lifetime. And so reading his files was really interesting to be able to kind of tie together certain things. And I mean, there hasn't been a, a book about Hughes, oh, yeah, I think in about 20 years. And so there hasn't really been conversation about him since we've come to understand head injuries better. Mm. You know, like now we have this public conversation about football mm. and and concussions and how hitting your head a lot can really change your personality. And I think it's, you know, it, it's sort of too late to apply a lot of those things to Howard Hughes's actual brain. Mm. But it is interesting to think about these possibilities that could explain some of his behavior. Yeah. This is a question I had throughout the book. Do you think he was a good businessman? Because like uh, most of the deals he makes just involve him selling off things that weren't doing too well. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I, I don't have a enough of an understanding of business myself to be able to judge between good or bad. But I think that in a lot of cases, he got what he wanted mm-hmm. because of his strategies that were maybe, maybe seemed more like eccentricities. Mm. I think that there is you know, really until he gets embroiled in this TWA fiasco, which he ultimately comes out of about $300 million richer, there weren't a lot of situations where he went into a business situation and didn't get what he wanted. Mm -hmm. You talked about reading all the newspaper clippings and such, but one of the things that we all know about old Hollywood is a lot of stuff was buried under the publicity machine, which Mm -hmm. sort of made everybody look you know, as good as possible, so to speak, or fit sort of the studio line on what was happening. And I'm wondering, like, when you do this book or when you do the podcast, how much of that is sort of uncovering a mystery, like digging behind what that studio line was? Yeah, I think that's one of the main activities of both the book and the podcast. And, and you know, there are a lot of things that we can never really know, especially about, you know, the 1950s and before where a lot of the people who were alive are not around to ask about it. But I think that once you kind of have an understanding of, especially in this case, I mean, Howard Hughes had these relationships with every gossip columnist where he would feed them items that he got from his detectives so that they wouldn't write about things that he didn't want them to write about. He paid off people all over town. Once you understand things like that, then you can read any gossip column item about him or anybody he was involved with and sort of see behind the screen a little bit. Mm-hmm. How do you start to develop that sense of um, knowing there's something more there and being able to feel like, okay, I can uncover this or this is just always going to be a mystery? Um, I think it's just a case-by-case basis, you Mm -hmm. know. I mean, there are certain things that I've written about in the past where now that I know more about how things work, I wish I could go back and and be more skeptical. Mm -hmm. Um, The more I do this work about old Hollywood, the more skeptical I get and the more I feel like I have to question everything. Mm -hmm. And also the more I feel like truth is maybe not, something that I'm ever going to have a fixed understanding of Mm. Um, because publicity is just a form of storytelling in Hollywood. It's not about, you know, somebody has a great accomplishment and we need to get everybody to know about it. Like Mm. it's like a parallel narrative to filmmaking. Right, right. One parallel that kept striking me throughout the book was thinking about Hughes in terms of uh, the current occupant of the White House, which I think is unavoidable in a lot mm-hmm. of ways living in this era. But were you – you worked on this book throughout his campaign, throughout that election. Mm-hmm. Were you sort of – did those parallels strike you as you were working on it? 
Well, one thing I can say is that there's a line in the introduction that is sort of a thesis statement about how we're finally having a conversation about men abusing their power. It's time to rethink the idea of the playboy as being a good thing. And one way to do that is by talking about the stories of the women who were involved with the playboy from their perspective. And I wrote that line the morning after the 2016 election. I just woke up and you know, I had like watched the election at a bar with some friends and had too much to drink. And I woke up just really like, upset and sad. And But I had those lines in my head. Mm-hmm. And I, I understood that like I had to, I had to get that out at that moment. And then it, you know, stuck around <laughs> two years later and it's in the book now. One of the things that you, you've talked about um, on the podcast especially is like how stories about women in the movies have always been ways that they talk about the systemic abuse of women by the movie industry or by society, let's say, like ways to talk about issues that affect primarily women. And now that we're kind of in this era of like, like you said, talking more about the abuses of powerful men, even if we haven't you know, gone as far as perhaps we might. What were sort of the outlets for people to talk about that? Were people talking about that at all? Or is this truly like a new thing that's happening? People weren't, like actresses weren't publicly talking about any of this stuff mm-hmm. um, in, during the period that my book covers. Mm. And, you know, I think that in a lot of cases, people didn't think that they were being abused. Mm. Um, and, and that's because some of this treatment was so systemic, I think women spoke to each other and, like, warned them about certain men in some cases. But, I mean, like, I can't remember if it's in her autobiography or just an interview, but there's this thing about Ginger Rogers where she's talking about Harry Cohn, who ran Columbia. And she's like, oh, he was a real ladies' man. He used to chase us all around his desk. Mm. And it's like, that's that's the way, that was the language that was used about a lot of these people. Like, Harry Cohn, like, forced actresses to have sex with him. Like, mm. <laughs> and an actress who was very famous and had a certain amount of power to be able to just brush him off as a ladies' man who chased you around his desk. Mm. I mean, that kind of language is not something that anybody would use today. Even people who are Me Too skeptics, even Mm. Catherine Deneuve, you know, (laughs) would not call a rapist a ladies' man. Yeah. That is sort of an interesting thing about, like, I I never would have thought about the other side of being a playboy, uh, for mm-hmm. at least in Howard Hughes's case, without reading this book, because there's been so many portrayals of him as this guy who, you know, slept with all these beautiful women, etc., and wasn't that fun. And, like, I'm wondering how you kind of came to um, think about, to flip that on its ear, to sort of um, be more skeptical of that image, like how that thesis occurred to you? Well, it wasn't even really a thesis. It was just that I wanted to know what the women's experiences were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I like I didn't go into it thinking that the women's experiences would be all bad. Mm. Um, and, you know, certainly they weren't. Like, I mean, there are people in the book who look, really enjoyed their time that they spent with Howard Hughes. And like, you know, Jane Russell is somebody who spoke in kind of this sort of Ginger Rogers way about him of like, like these girls were lucky to have been selected by him and to have been put in an apartment that was guarded by... <laughs> chauffeurs and bodyguards. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to tell it from the perspective of like trying to empathize with a woman who, you know, what she wants is stardom mm. and maybe she also wants romance and, you know, security and and various things and how their experience with him looked and felt to them. I'm someone who grew up watching old movies with my mom and there was sort of that mythology of, well, they just don't make them like that anymore. You know, kind of that idea of like everything was better and, you know, insert period in the past of choice. Becoming skeptical of that has been like a lifelong process. And I'm wondering (laughs) if you had a moment as somebody who loves classic movies, like if you had a moment when you were like, oh, this was not all that great. 
like the stories behind them, the mm-hmm. stories of the people who made them, the producers, et cetera, were not uh, as, as, you know, cheerful as they'd been sold. I guess I've always had an awareness of that. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, one of my first memories is being like four or five years old and my mother explaining to me who Rock Hudson was and what AIDS was mm-hmm. and like how sad it was that he wasn't able to be who he truly was for his whole life. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the first things I ever learned about anything. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, and I think I I always knew things about Judy Garland and how, you know, I I remember watching The Wizard of Oz and my mother being like, you know, she was 18. Mm. They've they've taped her breasts down. She's only pretending to be 12 years old. Mm. And, you know, so I kind of always had this awareness that there was something kind of darker that went alongside with the things that were kind of glamorous and glorious. Mm. Uh, Were you always drawn to the movies, like even when you were that small? Well, yeah, I I didn't think that was strange at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's because I grew up in Los Angeles in the '80s, but I, I yeah, it just it just seemed completely normal to me to be interested in old movies. Do you remember your first favorite movie? Probably The Wizard of Oz. So there are things that are not smart. One of them might be if you were Howard Hughes building a giant airplane that could barely fly, and then like sinking a lot of your fortune into it and calling it the spruce goose. Actually, I don't know if he called it that. I think the press did. But I think we can all agree that was not smart. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash think to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. That rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. ZipRecruiter.com slash think. Come on, folks. Don't be a spruce goose. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. When did you decide that this was going to be your career? Like, did you? I stumbled into this totally by accident, <laughs> and it feels like a lot of people uh, who are in our profession and in kind of our generation also did. So I'm wondering if if that was always your thing you wanted to do, right about the movies. I don't know about write about them. I didn't really know specifically what I wanted to do. I was interested in a lot of different things, and most of them had to do with visual media. And so I went to art school. Mm -hmm. And it was when I was in art school that I started reading serious film criticism and film history and and became interested in kind of going deeper into the way things were made. Mm -hmm. So I, after undergrad, I applied to graduate schools um, and some of the, the programs I applied to, like I was just last weekend in Boston and driving by MIT and I had applied to a program at MIT that would have been more about like, 
you know, doing statistical research about the way people watch things. Mm. But I didn't get into that one. (laughs) And I didn't get into the one that would have been more literary that I applied to at Brown. The one I got into was the one at NYU, which was a cinema studies program. Mm. And so that really focused my, helped me focus my interest on on classical Hollywood. And and still, while I was in graduate school, I didn't know what I was going to do. I kind of learned through graduate school that I probably wasn't going to become an academic teaching to me as like a performance and Mm. I'm not good in front of crowds. And I also am not good at writing in an academic style. I can do the research, but then my writing style is just more personal and has more voice than what academics usually have. Mm. Mm. So then I ended up working um, just kind of to make money. I got a job writing on the internet. (laughs) And uh, so I became a film critic for a while. Mm. Tell me about sort of the inception of the podcast because you've told the story many times, but I just I, I love it. It's yeah. a fascinating one. I had a teaching job, which was suffocating and horrible for me, mm-hmm. not because of anything external, but because I, you know, people were always like, "You should try to teach," and so I, I thought, okay, I know I don't want to, but I'll try it, and it was a huge mistake. So I was really unhappy just professionally, and I didn't know what to do, and I just kind of started hearing the sound of the podcast in my head, mm-hmm. and. I decided to take the um, the spring break I had from teaching, which was basically 10 days where I didn't have to work, and just try to make an episode of this thing that I had in my head and see if I could do it or see if I could teach myself how to do it. And so I did, and I put it out, and I was just basically like, I'd love any feedback about this. And most of the feedback I got was really positive and encouraging, along with some constructive criticism. And so I just, when I had time, I just started doing it. And then over this that summer when my semester ended, I decided to just try to do it as like a full-time job for the summer and see what happened. And really quickly I got good press and um, I joined a podcast network and the ball just kind of started rolling. Mm-hmm. You now do primarily longer miniseries about very specific topics and you take several months uh, sometimes longer to pull those together. Is that pretty similar to the process of working on a book like this? The book is so much more extensive. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the podcast seasons, I guess it could be like each one could be a sketch for a book. Mm-hmm. But I'm with the podcast, even if I take months to do research, I'm really limited to previously published sources. Mm. I can't do the kind of archival research that I did on the book. Mm. It just really takes that long to do all of the reading and writing about any topic. What was sort of behind the the shift to that miniseries format? Because originally the show was, you know, single or two-part episodes about like a smaller topic. And now you've sort of evolved into this, we're going to have a theme and then tell smaller stories within that theme. So what was behind that shift? It just makes it easier to manage the research. Mm -hmm. Um, It's much harder to start all over again with a new topic every week because I I do the research all by myself, you Mm -hmm. know, and so it's... It's just like a lot. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's a lot of movies to watch. There's a lot of reading to do. And so it's easier if I can kind of focus it on a few topics mm-hmm. so that it's just not so many different things to research. Mm. In the process of, of sort of working on the show or working on this book, is there a movie that you had like maybe not heard of or didn't have a great reputation that you just were blown away by that like now is one of your favorites? Well, I think in in the book, it might be easier to focus on the book. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, bu- a movie that I had never heard of called Wait Till the Sun Shines, Nellie, mm-hmm. starring Jean Peters, who was Howard Hughes' second wife. And 
Yeah, it's just like a crazy, mel- like a melodrama about America at the beginning of the 20th century and this small town and this guy who marries this woman played by Jean Peters and just lies to her and lies to her and lies to her until she finally cracks. Mm-hmm. And then she immediately like gets punished in a horrible way. <laughs> and I never heard of the movie until I started researching Jean Peters. I was writing the Jean Peters section of the book last summer, mm-hmm. which was also when Twin Peaks The Return was on the air. And so people were doing a lot of interesting writing about David Lynch. Mm-hmm. And I actually discovered the movie because somebody wrote something about how it was the first movie that David Lynch remembers seeing. Interesting. He says that he was a child asleep in the backseat of his parents' car at the drive-in and he woke up while this movie was playing. And that makes a certain kind of sense because it's like a really lurid, dark melodrama about, like, the American small town. Yeah. Um, Lynch doesn't say that it's one of his favorite movies or anything. It's just, like, a formative memory. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I'm presenting a screening of it in Toronto at at the TIFF Cinematheque that they have there. Mm -hmm. I think it's a movie not a lot of people have seen, and it certainly, like, doesn't get revived very often. So I'm really excited for people to see it. I had never heard of it, and the way you wrote about it made me want to see it. And it like never shows on television, no. so yeah. I don't know how I'm going to see it. Maybe well, it's on DVD it. actually. Oh like, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I, I that's how I first saw it. I bought a DVD on Amazon for like twelve dollars. So. Mm, mm. <laughs> this is actually going to going to dovetail nicely with something. I, a tangent I kind of want to go on that that maybe you'll disagree with. But <laughs> I think about when I was a teenager and started really getting into movies, and especially classic mm. movies. If I wanted to see Citizen Kane, I could walk into any video store and rent Citizen Kane. And now if I want to see Citizen Kane, certainly I think I can rent it on Amazon or whatever, but it feels like there's a new barrier now, you know, if it's just not on Netflix or if it's not on Hulu or something like that. And I'm wondering if you have similar feelings on that or if you think I'm being too pessimistic. It's frustrating, certainly. Like, luckily there is still a place in Los Angeles called Eddie Brandt Saturday Matinee, (laughs) which is pretty incredible. It's it's a functioning video store, but then also a lot of the stuff they have are bootlegs that Mm. are... DVDs made from people taping movies off of TV. Hmm. So they have everything mm. or almost everything. So that's a really good resource for me. But I know that in most parts of the country, people can't just like walk into a place and get stuff. And and then it, if even if you can track down a DVD that you can buy, it becomes prohibitively expensive. Hmm. So yeah, it's definitely frustrating. And I think that like it makes me sad that nobody is interested in preserving archives of physical media because I do think it's really important. And I hope that universities start taking up the mantle of doing that. I mean, personally, like this is slightly separate, but I'm trying to create a collection, a complete collection of confidential magazine, Mm -hmm. which is no library or archive in the world, as far as I can tell, has one that like some libraries have a few copies here or there. Um, And it's because people thought that like that magazine was trash. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And certainly like it is a trashy scandal sheet, but it's still a, a piece of history, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm just, I just buy up issues on eBay yeah. and I'm trying to collect a complete collection. And I think that people just threw away VHS tapes. Like we're shifting away from DVDs to digital stuff, to the cloud. But mm-hmm. with digital stuff, like the rights change all the time, you know? So there's no stable archive at all. Yeah, yeah. And you think like all the movies ever made, very few made it onto VHS. Even fewer made it onto DVD. Mm-hmm. Even fewer are on, are on streaming. Now, do you see a, a way to reverse that trend? I, I don't know. I mean, I think that money has to be put into the 
idea of archiving. And I know that there are people in contemporary Hollywood that like want to do that, but mm-hmm. it's just there's not enough of a groundswell. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Hollywood needs to get better at preserving its own history any way possible. It's it's always been a problem. Obviously, most silent films that were made don't exist anymore in any form. But what's interesting is that there are a lot of movies starring major stars made by major directors that are just not available. What's the lost movie that you would most love to see? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I don't know that I have, like, a great white whale or anything, (laughs) but, like, every time I'm working on a podcast episode, like, it's frustrating that I read about movies that I can't see. I mean, right now I'm working on an episode about this Mexican actress, Lupe Velez, Mm -hmm. and she made a movie in, I think, 1942 called Ladies' Day Mm. where she plays – a Mexican actress who marries a pitcher for the Red Sox and he immediately gets the yips, Mm -hmm. like he can't pitch anymore. And so the other team wives kidnap her. Mm. And as a baseball fan (laughs) and as somebody who's researching Lupe Velez, like I really want to see this movie. And as far as I can tell, it's never been released on DVD. It's not available anywhere. Mm -hmm. And as we record this, the Red Sox are playing the Dodgers in the World (laughs) Series. So it's timely. It's timely. It is. Do you still, obviously you still go out and see movies, but like how often do you see something new in theaters? I don't know, maybe once a week, once Mm. every couple weeks. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not at all interested in like superhero movies or Mm. anything like that. So I I just, I don't see everything. I don't really, I don't really care about horror movies. Like, Mm. so there's a lot of stuff that gets put out that I'm just not interested in. (laughs) What are, what are maybe some misconceptions you had perhaps in researching the book that you found uh, overturned by the process of writing it? Um, I don't know that I really had misconceptions, but I guess the biggest surprise for me was reading Ida Lupino's FBI file, Mm. um, because the, there's a very good biography of her that talks about how she was, you know, really against McCarthyism and how she worked to try to protect her friend, John Garfield from being blacklisted. But her FBI file makes it very clear that she volunteered information to the FBI Mm about actors who were blacklisted. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was disillusioning and (laughs) difficult to deal with. Mm. One of the other things that I really like about the book is it introduced me to some of these people like Jean Peters, Terry Moore. I mean, I'd heard of Jean Peters, but like I didn't Mm -hmm. really know anything about her. Uh, Who was kind of the, of those 10 women you mentioned, who was... um, who were some of the ones you like learned the most about? We talked a little bit about Terry Moore, but some, yeah. some of the others in there. Well, I didn't really know anything about Faith Demerg going in. Um, so it was exciting to like see some of her movies and, you know, learn more about her experiences. Jean Peters and Terry Moore for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of them I learned things that I didn't know about. What's a, Hepburn is somebody who has such a huge profile. What's something you learned about her that you hadn't known before? I didn't know that there was public conversation about her sexuality in the 1930s. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, that there, I mean, it was coded, but I mean, the, in magazines, mm-hmm. there was conversation about whether or not she was going to be a quote unquote real woman mm-hmm. and, you know, heavy implications that she needs to you know, find a male partner or like the moviegoers are going to turn against her. <laughs> that is one of the more fascinating sections of the book is where you talk about speculation about Hughes' own sexuality, some of the other women in his circle's sexuality, like Cary Grant's sexuality. How how widespread was that? How much were people talking about that? Was it sort of relegated to certain publications or was it uh, all over? Well, I think in the 1930s, most of that speculation was about Catherine Hepburn, at least mm-hmm. publicly. Now... There's a great deal of writing about Cary Grant and Howard Hughes that say that they were bisexual or in the case of Cary Grant, I mean, I think that there's 
widespread speculation that he was primarily a gay man who married women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, for every piece of writing that claims these things, there are people who forcefully deny it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not that interested in, like, trying to prove who people who were long dead actually had sex with. Mm-hmm. And I actually don't think it matters that much. But what matters to me or is interesting to me is the fact that there has been speculation and, and how this impacts the way we see the work. One of the you mentioned Faith Demerg, mm-hmm. that's correct. Yeah, um, and uh, she met Hughes when she was sixteen, and then became engaged to him. And throughout the book, there's stories about like teenage girls who are you know set up with much older men who date much older men, uh, get engaged to much older men. How common was that in the in that era? Well, in Hollywood, I mean, a lot of going back to the very beginning of the medium. Teenage actresses worked and pretended to be adults. Mm -hmm. And so I think that once you're 15 years old and you're like playing somebody's wife Mm -hmm. on screen, Mm -hmm. there's not such a bridge to being somebody's wife in real life. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I haven't done like a study of, you know, how many 16 year old (laughs) girls slept with 40 year old men. Well, that became less common. Like certainly we still have like 25-year-olds playing 50-year-olds wives, but like what was the when was that um kind of change? Cuz I had I had not really thought about that until yeah. reading this book. I mean, isn't there like a story of Melanie Griffith being like 16 years old and like 25-year-old Don Johnson like, yeah. you know? I mean, I, maybe it wasn't that long ago. Mm, interesting. Well, you said that you read the audiobook of the mm-hmm. book. What was that process like? I know that if I read anything I've written too much, I start to lose my mind. <laughs> and I know recording yeah. an audiobook is a lengthy uh, thing. So so tell me about like, did you just hate the book by the time you were done with that? Oh, no. But I think I thought I was going to be prepared for it because I my podcast is like, what I do is I write like mm. four to 6,000 words about something and then I read it. So, yeah. mm-hmm. um, But of course, the book is longer than that. And it was a longer <laughs> process. It took about... Uh, it took eight days, so it mm-hmm. spread across two weeks, and um, it was really physically draining. Mm-hmm. I didn't hate the book, but I did catch, like, some typos, and, you know, I, I spelled somebody's name wrong, and I, like, you know, r- didn't realize it until I was reading the audiobook, and so I had to just, like, scramble to make sure that that got changed before the final book went to print, which it did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was mostly just like physically demanding and it would be a thing where I would work for like five to six hours a day on the audiobook and be done by three, but then would be so tired that it would be difficult to do other work that day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was just, it was a difficult two weeks, but I hope people like it and I hope I don't sound too stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you have written other books before this book, but mm-hmm. this is a, by far your longest, most researched, most all of that. What's something you learned out over this process that now you feel like you didn't know before, but you'll always know going forward if, if you write other books? I guess I just know that I can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, really, when I turned in the first draft of the book about a year ago, I you know, sent an email to my editor that was like, I don't even know if this is a book. Mm. So um, please tell me if it is. (laughs) And so I guess I'll have just more confidence. Mm -hmm. Well, we're kind of coming into the end of the show, but I do want to ask, you mentioned looking at Howard Hughes's life through the prism of now we know a lot more about head injuries. Um, (laughs) these, These people that we keep 
uh, returning to, whether they're stars or former presidents or things like that, with greater understanding of you know science or whatever we know from the present. What, what is sort of what to you is the value of continuing to go back to people who've been written about a lot and looking at them through fresh eyes? The tagline for my podcast is that it's a secret and or forgotten history of Hollywood's first century. And like the secret history part is often just looking at things from a feminist perspective mm-hmm. um, and being able to understand things like that happened in the past from our modern perspective of things like consent and feminism. And, you know, I mean, a lot of film history is written from the perspective of white male dominance. (laughs) And it's just interesting to be able to look at things in a different way. Yeah. You mentioning that, you know, made me think about some of the, uh, the just quick sketches of like women who like flit through the book for maybe a couple pages and they're just somebody like, uh, I think there's one who's like an opera singer (laughs) from, or something like that from, from Europe. Like, What's helped by sort of exhuming these figures and thinking about them? Uh, maybe this is the same question asked in a yeah. different way, but you know, just sort of that idea of looking at them not as subjects of Howard Hughes' story, but looking at them as people in their own right, as, as the the center of their own stories. Well, they are people, and they <laughs> you know they all had their own stories. I mean, I think that you know the whole project of the book is like. In a book about Howard Hughes or any other, like, quote-unquote, great man, the women are treated as, like, collateral. Mm -hmm. And each one of those people lived their own lives and had their own stories and were human beings. And I just think that that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you some of those. Um, I'm going to start with uh, looking at um, the pop culture sphere, TV, movies, books, music. What's the last pop culture thing you did and uh, what did you think of it? That I did? Yeah, whether you whether you went to see a movie or watched a TV show or oh, listened okay. to an album or whatever. I guess the last thing I did was um, the night before last, I watched this Lupe Velez movie called Mexican Spitfire, mm-hmm. which was one of seven movies she made um, uh, playing the same character where she's a Mexican singer who marries like a boring white American mm-hmm. businessman who um, was spo- like previously engaged to a boring white lady mm-hmm. um, who like the boring white lady basically spends all seven movies scheming to like get her <laughs> man back. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't want you to spoil the, this episode of the upcoming <laughs> podcast, but Lupe Velez is fascinating to me. Like, have you enjoyed mm-hmm. spending time with her? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been fun. <laughs> um, next up is, uh, uh, wh- who's the writer or journalist or uh, critic that you've learned the most from living or dead that you never met? Oh, um, well, I don't know if it would be a single thing, but I feel like my writing was um, most influenced by reading Spin Magazine in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, I really devoured that magazine when I was a teenager, and um, I just feel like I kind of internalized the writing style of everybody who wrote for it. I loved Spin. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that, that was like, I subscribed to it, and my parents were very confused because I lived in the middle of nowhere. And like, <laughs> how did I even hear about this? Uh, and finally, what would you say? We uh, we talked earlier about your first favorite movie was The Wizard of Oz, but what now, if somebody just comes up to you and says, what's your favorite movie? Like, what's your go-to? Or probably you have five or six, because I always do. Right. Well, the number one, and it's been number one for... 20 years and sounds too topical, but it's the 1954 version of A Star is Born directed mm. by George Cukor and starring Judy Garland. What is it about that one that draws you to it? Um, it was, I just, 
I first watched it when I was about 20 years old and um, I just, you know, was really drawn into it emotionally and in terms of the craftsmanship. And I read this book at the time by Ronald Haver about the making of the movie and then its destruction by Warner Brothers and its reconstruction Mm. by Ronald Haver, who was the curator of film at the L.A. County Museum of of Art. And it just like, it tied together for me so many of my interests about film and about the inner workings of Hollywood. And I'm really interested in as kind of like the Ur example of Hollywood making movies about Hollywood that pretend to be critiquing the industry from the outside Mm -hmm. while at the same time shoring up the audience's devotion and fascination Hmm. with Hollywood movies. So it's one of those things where it it never loses its attraction to me every time I watch it. I'm kind of stunned by it anew. And Judy Garland's phenomenal in it. Like, yeah. I love that movie too. Um, yeah. The book is Seduction. Karina Longworth, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I think you're interesting is a show that would be greatly improved if I talked like an old time radio reporter and went like this all the time. And Hollywood is a wonderful place to work. Yeah, we're not going to do that. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of the show. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our editor is Griffin Tanner. Our executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our studio and audio engineering are thanks to the Rebel Talk Network. And our recording engineer is Ernie Hurtado. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you find fine podcasts. If you have something you want to say to me, you know, I guess not in a public review, you can email me, Todd at Vox.com. Email the whole show, ityi.podcast, itye.podcast at Vox.com. And you can also tweet at me at TVOTI to Vody. We are going to be back next week. Well, next week is Thanksgiving. So there's we're going to do our Thanksgiving episode from last year, but you're going to love it because it's one of our best episodes. So tune back in for that while you're cooking your turkey. And until then, I don't know. I, I think it works. I think I think it's a good voice. I think uh, I think people would like it if I did this more, don't you? Yeah. I shouldn't do that ever again. <laughs>